this is the crux. I said to you there's a guy called John Hick in the 1960s who was a professor in Birmingham. And he first, in academic circles, he, 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 he kind of first said this idea that all religions are the same. Basically what we have to do, he said, is just take Jesus out of the equation and his claim to be the Son of God. And if we take that out of the, the equation, then actually all religions are just moral teachings and they're all the same. <laughs> so that's what he did. He introduced this kind of into our culture. And now, like I said last week, if you go to your neighbors, they probably think something similar. All religions are the same. It's just God in a different kind of form, and we must just get over it. You know, Jesus is not unique. Well, here's the problem with Mr. Hicks' uh, theology, is that actually Jesus is extraordinarily not like other people. He's unlike anyone who's ever lived. He's, he made claims that nobody else has ever made in history. He claimed to be God. So what are we going to do with that? We can't take Jesus out of the equation. And largely, that kind of thinking has been thrown off because uh, basically people are saying, well, you can't do that. The particulars of each um, way of uh, religion are very different. Uh, there's very different views of heaven amongst Muslims and Christians and Jews. And so surely they, they can't all be the same because the particulars are very different. And people have started thinking like that now. But we have to, in our culture... Do away with this kind of idea that we can just smash everything together and it actually is, is the same. It's not the same. Jesus is completely unique, and the book of Colossians helps us to understand that in a profound way. He is supreme above all. And I hope over the next couple of months that you are going to be convinced of that in your heart and you're going to live differently as a result. Amen? Okay, so Paul. He writes this little introduction, and the first thing I want to say to you this morning, if you can put up the, the next slide, please, yeah, in, in these verses, even Paul's language in this little introduction is full of meaning. And as we just look at these words, we can see how full of meaning it is. Paul's faith and love towards Christ shines out at every point of this introduction. He writes simply like this. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Remember, he's never met them. And we see these three simple things in this little introduction that I want to look at you with this morning. He talks about the identity of a Christian, number one. He talks about the needs of a Christian, number two. And third, he talks about what makes up the character of a Christian. And so, in terms of the identity of a Christian, he says very simple things. He says, first, a Christian is a saint. You and I are saints. It simply means those that are set apart for God. And that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit and God's work in our lives. And uh, all of us that have been saved by God's grace are saints. All right? You need to get that into your heart. Saints are not special people. You know, the Catholic tradition has said only certain super spiritual Christians who have done extraordinary things are called saints. No, the Bible says every single one of us that believes by faith through Christ, in Christ Jesus is a saint, a called out one, called out of the world, set apart by God to do His will. You and I are saints. Come on now. That's good news, right? There's no hierarchy of people in the kingdom. All of us are saints. And secondly, Paul says in these little phrases that a Christian is someone who's been made different. I'm not saying that in terms of being superior. I'm just saying a Christian, by definition, is someone who's been made different by the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. The Bible puts it this way. We were dead before we knew Christ, spiritually dead. 
And once we were born again by the Spirit of God, we came alive on the inside, and a relationship with God became possible. And because of that, we are different by definition from those that do not know Christ. We are called out. We are separate. God has worked powerfully in our lives, and that makes us different. Just by definition. And that implies a whole lot of things for how we view the world. Thirdly, Paul says a Christian is a believer. Someone who's been set free from ignorance, from the power of darkness, and brought to, to trust in the, in the Lord Jesus. I've said this so often in this church. You are forever released from a kingdom of darkness, and you are forever put into the kingdom of light. And you might fall down, you might stumble in the kingdom of light, but you never go back. You don't lose your salvation once you've put your trust in Jesus. That should liberate you and free you on the inside and cause you to say yes and amen with a loud voice. Okay, I am Pentecostal this morning, all right? <laughs> Hallelujah. And Paul says, a Christian is someone who's been united to Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. We are part of Him. We have been, we have been um, uh, connected to Him in a fundamentally, in a deep way. Like my arm is connected to my body, we are connected in Christ to the head, which is Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. And lastly, he says, he says, he writes to these dear friends of his in Colossae. And the last thing about a Christian is that although we are ch children of God, although we have a heavenly home, although we are, uh, that is our identity, we are left on earth for a while to do some stuff. Yes? We are left for a while. So Paul could write to us and say, to the saints in St. Albans, to the saints in Welland Garden City, to the saints in Hatfield, to the saints in Hartford, to the saints in London. There is a, there's a geography to where we work out our salvation, to where we get on with God's people. Are you with me? And so this is what Paul says is the identity of a Christian. Someone who's become a saint, someone who's been made different by the Holy Spirit, someone who is in Christ Jesus, who's a believer in the Lordship of Christ, and someone, although he's a citizen of heaven, is left on earth a while to do some stuff and to live a life that glorifies God. That's what it means to be, that's the identity of a Christian. Secondly, he talks about the needs of a Christian. Uh, I love this little phrase that Paul uses so often. He says, uh, where is it? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. You want to know what you need for your life? You don't want to know what I need for my life? Grace and peace. That's all I need. That's all you need. To live a godly life, what do you need? Daily, 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 you need God's grace, His kindness, His mercy, His uh, reassuring um, hand upon your shoulder that he's your constant daily help in living this Christian life. That's what it means to walk by grace, that you're not doing it in your own strength. You are relying on the power of the Holy Spirit moment by moment, day by day, God to help you. Grace to you, Paul says. I say grace to you. I say peace to you. What does that mean? Peace means that we are reconciled by, 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 to God by Christ. And because we are reconciled to God, we are no longer enemies of God. We're His friends. We're His sons and daughters. And so the peace we have with Him, we can enjoy with each other. Yes? Grace and peace. I mean, life would be so simple if everyone could just have peace with each other, isn't it? Peace. Peace. 
Not anxiety in our relationships, not anxiety in our No, peace. That peace comes as we are re- because we are reconciled with our Father. We can have that same peace with each other. So my prayer for this church over us this year is grace and peace. Grace and peace. I sign my emails, love and courage. I learned that from Mark. That's a cool thing, love and courage. Love to you and courage to you. I could also say grace to you and peace to you. We need to start using some biblical language to really encourage each other. Come on. The world is such a discouraging place. You you, you need to encourage your kids, and I need to encourage my kids. Why? Because the world and school tells them a whole lot of stuff about themselves already. They need to come home and hear from mom and dad. I'm proud of you. I love you. I want grace for you. I want courage for you. Come on now. And then... Third, so the identity of a Christian and what we need as Christians. The third thing Paul addresses in these little verses, he says what makes up a character of a Christian. How do we know those that are truly Christians? A lot of people that call themselves Christians, how do we know that they really are Christians? And we're not judging, I'm just saying, how do we know from the Bible? Well, I I, I love this. Notice what Paul starts with, right? I'm struck by his gratitude. Do you notice that? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. What is the starting point of Paul's life? Gratitude, thankfulness, always being thankful for the blessings of God and what he's done in people's lives. I love watching comedy. And the other day, Helen and I were watching um, Live at the Apollo. I can't even remember who the comedian was. But he was saying that what marks out us as people living in the UK as a nation, the thing that most marks us out from every other nation on the earth, is that we are great moaners. That's what he said. He said we are moaners. We moan about everything. We moan about the weather. We moan about our politicians. We moan about our football team. We moan about everything. And that's what marks us as British citizens. Now, you might, you might disagree with him, but I was amazed as he was making jokes about what people moan about, how many people laughed so uproariously because they could all identify with what he was saying. What marks Paul's life is gratitude. I want to put it to you that perhaps what should begin to mark our lives is gratitude. Surely we should be asking the question of ourselves, of ourselves when someone meets me, what is their first impression? Do they notice my gratitude, my, my thankfulness for who God is and what He's done in my life? Or do they notice that I moan a lot? It's not such a comfortable question, is it? Do I moan a lot? What impression am I giving to others? And you see, Paul says, no, in all things, he thanks God continually for these wonderful people that God has saved and called out and are called Christian friends and brothers. I want to encourage you, let us be in a, a, a church filled with gratitude. And then he, he kind of zeroes in a little bit more, and he says what he's grateful for. Three little things when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, first, and the love that you have for all the saints, second, Because of the hope, third, that you have that is laid up for you in heaven. Three things that should mark our lives as Christian people. That by these things people know that we we are Christians. We are full of faith. We are full of love. We are full of hope. Faith, love, and hope. Someone say amen. That's a very good thing. Now, I'm a musician, right? And so chords in the music business are made up of three notes. You have a root. 
and you can't hear because it's switched off. That's not so cool. Is everything switched off? Everything is switched off. Fantastic illustration when you can't um, switch the keyboard on. Yes. So you have a you have a a root note, you have a third, and you have a fifth. And those three notes are beautiful on their own, aren't they? That would be cool just to hear. That would be cool just to hear, and that's also good. But when you put them together, you have a a triad, a, a chord, which sounds more beautiful than the things that are just on their own. And so that's Paul, Paul's, Paul's um, encouragement to us, is that there needs to be a triad in our lives as Christians. Three things working together. Faith, love, and hope. And when they work together, they are absolutely beautiful and they start to represent Jesus to other people. Faith, love, hope. And so I want to ask you, as we try and live our lives as Christians, what pleases God most in how we live? Now, for those of you that know me, you know how I'm going to answer, right? (laughs) I answer like this. I say there are many Christians that say, and many preachers that say, that actually the way to live in a way that pleases God is to follow rules, make resolutions about this and that, and keep to the rules. Keep to, keep, keep to the, the, the resolutions that you, um, that you have made. To be a good person. I put it to you, I say again, that is not what the Bible teaches. It's not a biblical view of life. That's simply a way of teaching moral ethics to other people and that's how the world tries to live this is how the world says do your best to be a good person have your set of rules and live up to your own expectations of your own rules and that's the best that you can do is to be a good person that's not what the bible says that's not what jesus says that's not what the gospel says i'm not saying we must try and be bad people not at all what does the bible start at it starts at this point it tells you who you are You are a saint. You are called out one. You are different by definition to everybody else because the Spirit of God has ignited your heart as you've been born again and something inside of you that was dead is alive. That's the starting point. You are completely different because of the power of the Holy Spirit in you, working in you, transforming in you. And the Bible says on top of that, God has given you grace and peace. All that you need, grace and peace, to live a life that pleases Him. And now all you need to do is to respond to the Holy Spirit in your life, and He will tell you moment by moment, day by day, what He wants you to do. That is completely different from living by rules. It's got nothing to do with doing your best. Jesus has done all that is needed. He is the best. As we embrace all that He's done for us by the power of the Spirit, we please Him and we walk with freedom and joy and liberty. You don't have to get told to worship. You don't have to get told to pray. You don't have to get told to give. Why? Because on the inside, it's like, yes, Jesus, this, I love you and all I have is yours. My life, my prayer, my family, my possessions, everything is yours. So I give it freely. The Bible starts by telling us who we are, reminding us that we are sons and daughters of the living God, saints called out ones, having the power of the Holy Spirit, having peace with God, and then the Bible says, hear the voice of the Spirit and live your life freely, joyfully, knowing as you do that you are pleasing God. Man, that is good news. And Paul, if you go and read his letters, he always starts like that. 
you can read those through three things, faith, love, and hope, in all these places. Romans 5, the first five verses. 1 Corinthians 13, you know it well. Read at weddings all the time. In Ephesians 4, verse 2 to 5. 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians 5. The writer to the Hebrews, whoever that was, mentions also the same three things, faith, hope, and love. In Hebrews 6, the first 12 verses, Hebrews 10. They are the summary of what it means to live a Christian life. The entire Christian life rests on faith, love, and hope. That's what Paul is trying to get into our hearts. And in some ways, it is true that faith comes first because faith leads us to salvation. It also leads us to loving other people and loving God. And it also leads us into an expectation of what is going to do, God is going to do. And hope also helps us to stimulate our faith and our, our love again. And so those three things, they kind of work together. They all speak into each other. And that's why I said they are beautiful triad in which we can learn to live in a way that encourages others and points to Jesus. So, remember we said Paul's basic thing is gratitude. So what is he, what is, what is he grateful to God for, for these guys? For their faith. So he's first of all saying, I'm, I'm grateful that you're saved. There, that's one aspect of faith. Faith saves us. But secondly, faith has to continue. And for any of, any of you that have um, been saved for more than a minute, you know this is true. Faith has to be applied into our lives in a thousand different situations. Moment by moment, when we face challenge and opposition in our lives, faith carries on believing, trusting God, like Abraham. When you are facing something in your life where uh, you see a delay, you have to exercise faith to keep on believing. When you see your own weakness and your own frailty in your relationships, you have to exert faith to keep on believing that God is going to break through in your relationship. Faith must be exerted continually. It saves us, and then we apply it in a thousand ways in our lives. What areas of your life are you, is God still asking you to persevere? What areas in your life are you ex experiencing some delay where God is just saying, I still want you to trust me by faith? That's the kind of faith that pleases God. Remember the great heroes of Hebrews chapter 11? It says they get to the life, and some of them didn't see the fullness of what God has promised, and yet they're all commended for their faith, for that ongoing, persevering, not giving up. Jesus, you have spoken. I'm trusting you. What is that God saying for what areas in your life? Well, you know, I trust that Forest Town Church will be famous for that kind of faith. I want this church to be well-known for a couple of things. And I would want this church to be well-known. Those are a people of faith. They keep on. They keep trusting. They keep on believing in the goodness of God. Even when there are delays, even when they have to persevere, those people in that church, they are men and women of faith. Second, Paul is grateful for their love. Isn't that wonderful? You know, when we love, we're like Jesus. When we don't love, we're not like Jesus. And I want to put it to you that love, when we love truly, there's a brokenness in our hearts that has lost all self-interest. That's what love is, by definition. It's not interested in itself, it's interested in others. It sees the needs of others and takes action. It's a warmth in our hearts that wells up even to help those that hate us. Oh, man, I find that so hard. <laughs> Jesus said, love 
your enemies, even those that curse you, love them. Man, that is incredibly difficult. Why I'm the only one who thinks that's hard. And that love is birthed simply out of the sheer gratitude, knowing that it's because God loved us first that we can love other people. And here's the little thing that I find uncomfortable. I love talking about love. <laughs> but you notice he says, the love that you have for all of the saints. Man, I just wish that little word all wasn't in there. Man, the love that you have for some of the saints. Then, Yeah, I'm, amen, come on. The ones that I like, yeah, come on, I love those people. The ones that agree with me, yes, amen, I want to love some of the saints. No, Paul says, you love all the saints. <laughs> what does that mean? It means all. It means the poor. It means the uneducated. It means the backslidden. It means the insincere. I found in years of leading a church, those are the hardest people to love. People that are insincere. God says you love the insincere. <laughs> you love everyone. That is only possible by the power of the Spirit. And the Colossian church, they were faithful, they were famous for loving everyone. How cool is that? Wouldn't it be a noble thing for this church to be known as a church that loves everyone? Not just some. Not just some speak with the same accent or the same nationality or the same educational class or the same social strata. Labor Party voters, not Tory voters. Tory voters, not Labor Party voters. Rich, not poor. Not, no, no, we, don't, we, we like to love certain people. <laughs> huh? It's a great, great challenge that is only possible to overcome as God transforms our own hearts by the power of His Spirit. Paul is grateful that they love everyone. Thirdly, Paul is grateful to God for their hope. He says, faith leads to hope, and they get inspired by hope, and there was an expectation in their hearts. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There's an eternal motivation in their hearts that enables them to press on, that enables them to love, that enables them to persevere, because they know there's a reward coming in heaven for them one day. And Paul happily reminds them of this hope that has enabled them to persevere and press on. And my friends, I want to encourage you, we have great hope, because this is not as good as it gets. This, this what we see now, as good as this world is, as lovely as this world is, and there are many things that I love about this world, that are thrilling in this world. Paul says, don't put your hope in this world, because there's something far better coming that is laid up as a treasure for you in heaven. Let that hope motivate you to persevere now, to live well now because there's a reward coming. And I think sometimes as Christians, we think it's unspiritual to be motivated by reward. And that's kind of, that's kind of like, it's, you know, should we be motivated by reward? Absolutely. Paul was motivated by reward. Jesus was motivated by reward. He knew what lay on the other side of this moment of death that was going to be released in the fullness of to him in heaven with his father. Let it motivate all of us. And then lastly, 
We're going to read the next uh, three verses, and I've got a couple of comments out of that. Uh, verse 5 to 8, Paul says, Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which came to you, and as indeed in the, whole word it's in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does amongst you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, which you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, which has been made and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, having, having thanked and being thankful for the Colossians' faith, their hope and their love, he then continues in these couple of verses to happily remind them that their salvation was part of this amazing spiritual uh, awakening that had happened in Asia. And what exactly was that? Well, we see, we can see in these verses, the Bible always explains itself very clearly if we just look. And so we see in these verses that this, this revival, this awakening that happened in, the, in Asia Minor involved the spreading of the clear message, the good news of the Lord Jesus. It was a message that was preached. And you can notice that Paul is constantly referring in these, in these verses to this message that was preached. He calls it the word of truth. He calls it the gospel in verse 5. And he says they learned it. My hope for this church is that every one of you will learn the gospel, that you will know what the gospel is. That will so transform your life that when you hear other stuff, you'll be able to say, that is not the gospel. That might be self-help. That might be good motivational speaking. But that is not the gospel. I want you to be motivated by the freedom of the gospel in your life. That you know what Jesus has done for you, and by that you will live. By definition... He's saying here that the gospel has definite content, the message has definite content that we can learn. He says, secondly, it is good news. That's why it's called gospel. Most religions, most philosophies that um, teach you that you must be saved by your own cleverness and philosophy or by your good works are really bad news. Because how do you ever know whether you are clever enough, religious enough, or good enough to achieve those things? The gospel, according to Jesus, is good news because it tells all that is needed has already been done for us in Christ. And all we do is believe by faith. And so here Paul is saying this message that you've heard that's transformed your life, it's something you can learn, it's something you can be taught, it's something you can pass on to other people. And lastly, he says, this gospel message contains a hope, which is the expectation of your reward and glory. And so I've, I've already mentioned this, that we're not concerned primarily with this world, as beautiful as this world is, but there is something that is coming for us that is far better. And lastly, not only did this involve the message being proclaimed, but it also involved the power of the Holy Spirit spreading, helping to spread this message in a forceful and a way, uh, way that transformed the whole of Asia. At verse 6 says... Um, it's bearing fruit and growing all over the world. There's a sense of increase that comes as the Holy Spirit um, uses this message that they proclaim boldly. And so I put it to you this morning as we finish, I want, to I want you to think about two things. Revival always involves two key ingredients. The message of the gospel being pro proclaimed. These signs will follow the preaching of the gospel. These signs will follow. Always the gospel is, pro is, is proclaimed with power. And then the Holy Spirit uses that in a powerful way to transform people's lives. And so this is what Paul says happened in Asia Minor. And we also know that later he says, fierce wolves come in amongst you and destroy this message. But powerful revival 
like happened on the day of, the, of Pentecost and in Asia, uh, these, this move gave Paul such joy to speak this over the Colossian church. And he says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. And so I put it to you this morning that the revival that Paul is speaking about that transformed the Colossian church, that reformed Asia Minor, is really a great revival of, what am I going to say? Signs and wonders, salvation, healing, what am I going to say? You know I'm not going to say those things. Because what Paul is speaking about here is saying, this great revival is a revival of supernatural love. So I challenge you, as I challenge myself, when you think of the word revival, what do you think of? I guarantee you the tone of all the churches in the world is, so revival is signs and wonders. Revival is thousands of people being saved. Revival is all these things, the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And I don't disagree with that on one level. But what Paul is saying here on another level is what these people are famous for is not the signs and wonders and that many people have been saved and that churches have been planted. What these people are famous for is their love. I put it to you, revival that is genuine starts with love. Love for God and love for each other. And all those signs follow when love flows. Then people get saved. Then people are healed when the love of God is flowing by the power of the Holy Spirit. My friends, this is, the, this is where we start. We start on our knees. We start in our, with an open heart, loving God with all of our heart and trusting that when He wills, He will pour out revival in great signs and wonders and power. Come on. That, that wasn't such a popular message, was it? So, he says in verse 8, He told us of your great love in the Spirit. So I put it to you. What will you be remembered for? What will I be remembered for? What will Forest Town Church be remembered for? Will it be our, our expressive worship? Will it be our tasty coffee? <laughs> will it be our warm fellowship? Will it be miraculous signs and wonders? Will it be wisdom? Will it be knowledge? Will it be inspiring preaching? Will it be faith? Will it be hope? Will it be love? I trust that we'll become famous for all of those things. All of them. Every single one. But most of all, I trust that we'll become famous as a church that loves people with the love of Christ that we have received. Faith, hope, love. Paul says, these three things remain, and the greatest of them is Let it be true of you, let it be true of me, let it be true of each other, that we can embrace people of every background, nation, education, whatever, because there's one who's brought us all together, and we are one in him. His name is Jesus, the supreme one who is Lord of all creation, of every good thing. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we want to just thank you for your love in our lives. Thank you that you've you found us when we weren't even looking for you. Uh, when our hearts were far from you. Your, your word says we, we were like enemies to you and you sought us out. You came and you pursued us and you reached into our hearts and lives and you transformed us by the power of the Spirit. Lord, we are so grateful. We say thank you for all that you've poured out, all that you've done. 
Lord, I pray the testimony of this church in Colossia would inspire us, that we too would begin to have a picture of Christ that supersedes anything that we, we've ever known before, that you would paint a picture in our minds of the beauty and the majesty and the kindness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that works so powerfully to transforms people's, transform people's lives, out of which that love, churches were planted, people were healed, there was courage, there was joy because of the great love of God born in people's hearts. Lord, I pray by your Spirit, do that in our hearts. That we would love you with all of our hearts and we would love each other with all of our hearts and every single person that you add to this family. Lord, I trust you for the future of this church. Lord, we just come as your sons and say, Lord, we need parking, something as mundane as parking. Please will you provide for us. Lord, we need your provision in every way, in our families, for our own futures, and for the future of this church. And we simply come as sons and daughters. We come asking that you would pour out your love in our hearts, that we might love each other deeply from the heart, as you have loved us. And everyone says, Amen. So we just want to invite you, if you would like to stay for our visitors' lunch, we'll be starting that at 12.30. Um, and this morning we're going to be serving our tea and coffee in the auditorium just because things are set up for the lunch. So please.